Thanks, Don. And uh, thanks to the rest of the pastoral team for asking me to come do this. I'm really excited about what we're about to look at in, uh, in God's Word. Um, if you have a Bible or an app or whatever, turn to uh, Romans chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 7 to the end of the chapter. Um, and while you're turning there, it uh, gives me a chance to kind of intro what I'm doing here. So some of you kind of, I think, maybe know a little about me, um, that I have a bunch of siblings. Uh, I have a brother who's about 19 months younger than me, so we're really close in age. And um, that was a lot of fun growing up, if you have a brother or have you know, anyone that close to you. Uh, always have a play buddy, um, someone to, especially since I was the oldest one, to express your dominance over. Uh, and at six years old, I was a really intimidating figure when I was David and he was Goliath and I was throwing rocks at him. Uh, and, you know, because I'm going to be the one that's killing Goliath, not the other way around since I'm the older one. Um, but as we got older, I mean, my brother actually started to turn the tables on me. And he, it became pretty evident that he was smarter than me and better at sports than me. And it was a very frustrating thing for me. We did the same kind of school growing up because we were homeschooled. And if you know what that's like, homeschoolers out there. Uh, and even though he was a grade younger than me, we still did the same stuff. And he was that kid. He was that kid who always did the extra section every day. And I was like, I always wanted to go play with my friends. And he was like, now I'm going to do this next section. I was like, come on, man. Why did, why did you do that? Can't you just be average for like one time in your life? Like, just give us all the rest of us a break. And then in sports, I, he was just so good at everything he played. You know, those natural athletes. He's one of them. And I know my athletic prowess is, you know, something to brag about, but his was insane, and I just could never beat him at anything. And it was frustrating growing up. I always wanted to find a sport that I could beat him at, and we tried everything every time we tried something new, and he would always, would always win. And if you've had a younger brother that beats you consistently, then you know how frustrating that is. Uh, <laughs> but... Um, you know, it, it kind of we kind of laugh about it now. It's like, like a joke now, but back then, you know, it was kind of a big deal. We were struggling to prove ourselves back then, um, trying to figure out who we were. Um, and you guys, we've had a lot of struggle this year, haven't we? We've just come out of a crazy year with the pandemic, and you probably I probably don't have to talk too much too much longer for you to like think about the struggles you've had over this last year. Um, every single one of us has struggled with something, and so struggle is a big part of life. Well, today, in this passage, uh, we're going to look at another struggle. Um, but this struggle is probably the most fundamental struggle that all human beings have to deal with. And that's the struggle between right and wrong. It's a struggle between doing what's right and doing what's wrong. The struggle between righteousness and sin in our hearts. And in this passage we just get a magnifying glass over it. Paul just zooms right in on this struggle and blows it up so that we can see what it is all about. And I'm, I'm sure I don't have to like, give too many examples if you know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the battle between you know, being kind to your spouse even when they've hurt you. I'm talking about the battle that comes when you have that opportunity to lie at work to get ahead. I'm talking about that time when you did something dumb, but you want to defend yourself instead of looking like a fool. And right here in this passage, we get a view of this struggle. So we're going to read this, starting in verse 7. 
It'll, text will be on the screen, too, in case you uh, don't have anything with you. What then shall we say? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. And what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I, or I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but the sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil that I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is the sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I, myself in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. This is the word of the Lord. This section is one of the most psychologically deep passages in all the Bible. Here, Paul really gives us an amazing look at how our psychology as human beings mixes with our spirituality. But unfortunately, that also makes this section really challenging to understand. And there's a lot of debate by well-respected theologians on how to interpret some of this stuff. And they come down in different places. And, you know, because of all that confusion, you might be tempted to kind of just gloss over that. There's a lot of, like, weird talk in here, and you're kind of like, okay, I sort of get it, but not really... Uh, and you just kind of move on. But what's being said here is absolutely critical for being a Christian and having victory in life over, this, over the sin that it still lives within us. So today we're going to look at three things in this passage. We're going to look at the nature of the struggle, because we need to understand what it is. We're going to look at some of the details of what that struggle looks like in the life of a Christian. And finally, we're going to look at how do we have victory in the struggle. So first, the nature of the struggle. And I think, I think sometimes there's this idea that we have, maybe when we first come to faith, where we, we're thinking, you know, I, I shouldn't struggle with sin so much anymore. Right? I, I just became a believer. I got, 
you know, I've been delivered from this. Why does it feel like the struggle just got harder? Because it is hard, right? If you've been a Christian for a while, you know life as a Christian is not easy. And if anyone ever told you it was, then they're not telling you the truth. But I think there's another idea that can sometimes go through our minds that maybe is just as dangerous, which is, well, we struggle because we're Christians. You know, unbelievers, they don't, they don't struggle with sin. And while there's some truth in that, on the surface, it's not very helpful in the long run, that idea, for a couple of reasons. One, because thinking that way can just make us feel superior to unbelievers. It's like, well, you know, at least we struggle. They don't. Or it can make you envious. You're like, man, I don't want to struggle. I wish I could be like them and not have to worry about this. But I think the biggest reason why it's a problem is because it's just not true. And it's not going to help you have victory in this battle. And here in Romans 7, Paul has something very different to say about it as well. What Paul is trying to tell us is there's a struggle that goes on in the hearts of unbelievers and believers. And it's only by understanding the difference that you can take steps towards winning. Maybe that sounds a little strange. Maybe that's something you've not heard before. Um, But before we look at the text for this, there's a lot in the text that shows us this. Let's just think about it logically for a second. Do unbelievers understand the difference between right and wrong? Yeah, of course they do. I'm sure if you talk to anyone in your life, there's a lot of stuff you guys would agree on. That's what's good and what's not good. Everyone's going to say we should treat others with kindness. You should treat others the way you want to be treated. You shouldn't lie. You shouldn't cheat on a spouse. Well, why? Why is that? Why do people agree on that? I mean, sociology might say, well, it's because it's what's good for society, so we've all agreed that this is the best way to live. But the Bible has something else to say. There may be some truth in that, but the Bible has something deeper to say about that. Earlier in this book, in Romans, Paul tells us. He tells us exactly why this is. He says that God's ways, his good law, is written on the heart of every single human being. It's called conscience. And we've all heard of conscience, I think. We talk about, we use that word pretty frequently. We're talking about it's that small voice inside us that says, hey, this is what's right, this is what's wrong. Do this, don't do that. And Paul's saying that this conscience is a real part of everybody, including an unbeliever. But here's the problem. Paul says there's another side to a human being. Why is it that so many of us, we know it's wrong to cheat and lie, say nasty things about other people, and yet we still keep doing it? Why can we not stop doing it if we know it's wrong? See, the problem here is that every human being has a side of them that's radically consumed with selfishness. It's a side that says, I'm going to do what I want to do. Nobody's going to get in my way. If it helps me, I'm going to do it. If I have to lie and cheat, that so be it. If it doesn't, as long as it doesn't hurt me, if it helps me, then I'm going to go ahead and do it. And this side is so radically consumed with selfishness that if conscience didn't exist, every single person on earth would be ruthless. This world would not be a place that anybody could live. Maybe you've been around like a really selfish person before. Is that someone you like hanging out with? Is that someone you want to invite over for dinner? 
There's something about it that just makes your skin crawl just a little bit when you see that kind of selfishness in a person. And what Paul's showing us here in Romans 7 is that it's our relationship to the law that brings out both sides really clearly. Now, if you're not, the law just like sounds weird to you. It's just a fancy word for God's rules and his ways and his commands. You can think of it like that. And Paul really unpacks this in verses 7 to 13. We're going to look at some of these verses. Um, Notice in verse 8, or sorry, verse 9, Paul says, Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. Uh, Does he mean that there was a time he didn't know what sin was, or he didn't know what God's rules were? No, we already talked about how these are all written on people's hearts, but even more specifically in Paul's case, he was Jewish, and he was studying to be a rabbi. So Paul would have been engrossed in the Old Testament. He would have known all of God's laws, the Ten Commandments, all of it. So he wasn't saying he didn't know that the commandment suddenly came to him, and he's like, oh, I didn't didn't know about this. What he's saying is that the commandment came home. There was a day where suddenly he realized he wasn't the decent person that he thought he was. And interestingly enough, Paul says that it was the last commandment specifically, that showed him this. Look at verse 7. He says, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had said, you shall not covet. Remember, that was the last of the Ten Commandments, you shall not covet. Well, what was it about coveting that exposed Paul so deeply? Well, what is coveting? I mean, it's kind of an old word. We don't use it too much anymore, but we've kept it. We know what it is. And I think the dictionary does a pretty good job on defining what this means. I literally looked it up, and it says, to desire inordinately. To desire inordinately. Coveting isn't just wanting something. There's nothing wrong with wanting things. That's fine. It's desperately wanting it. It's not looking at something and saying, I want that. It's looking at something and saying, I have to have that. I must have it. If I have it, I know my life matters. I'll finally be happy. And we all have something like this in our lives. If you don't know what it is, you just haven't looked hard enough. There are things that each one of us looks at and says, that is what makes me. It might be a job or a career of some kind. It could be how much money is in your bank account. It could be the relationships in your life, what kind of friends you have, what kind of spouse you have. It could be your influence. It could be your reputation, how much power you have. But some, we have something like this in all of us. And Paul had one too. And Paul tells us what it was. You see, Paul could look at the rest of the Ten Commandments and be like, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. You know, I don't commit adultery. I don't steal. You know, I've never lied about anybody. I don't worship idols. I keep the Sabbath. I haven't murdered anybody. But it was that last one. And he, and he felt like, yeah, I'm superior. I feel pretty good. I'm, a good. I'm a good guy. But the day that this came home was the day he realized that underneath all of his rule-keeping was just coveting. He valued his good name and right living more than anything else. It was this that he was using to justify himself and feel superior to others 
to feel like God owed him a good life and had to take him to heaven. Paul thought he was pretty good until he realized this. And it was this then that showed him that that selfishness that was in him was way deeper, more powerful, and hidden, and just consuming than he ever thought it was. But not only did the law expose this identity to him, it also made it worse. That's the really interesting thing about this passage. It's not like, oh, okay, now I I know that this is here. I'm going to do something about it. Look at verse 8. He sends sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covenant. The law didn't just expose his covetous heart. It actually aggravated it. The more he became aware of his coveting, the more he coveted. I think we can all sort of relate to this. How do you respond to somebody or anybody when they say, don't do that? What's the first thing that starts to happen in your mind? Well, now I just want to do that. I don't want to do that before, but now you told me not to. No one tells me what to do. And parents, you probably get this really well, like looking at your kid. Um, She didn't really want the toy that her sister was playing with that much until she was told, you can't have that. (laughs) Then Then she had to have it. I must have it. Otherwise, life is over. Even in the heart of a two- and a three-year-old, you can see this. This side of them that says, no one tells me what to do. I'm in charge of my life. Right? Three-year-old's in charge of their life, right? Yeah. And we've not really gotten a lot better at this as adults, have we? You know, we're, we're maybe a little better about hiding it. Like, we're not falling on the floor and crying, right, in the middle of the church. But we have other ways of doing it. It's a little more subtle, Maybe we just trample on people who get in our way. Or maybe we harbor bitterness and unkind thoughts about other people. But the point here is that moral education doesn't solve the problem. It actually makes it worse. So telling people what's right and showing that to them is actually going to make their sin problem even worse. Because then they're just going to want to keep doing that more. It aggravates that part, that selfishness. And so it's really just an unwinnable battle because you've got conscience on the one hand that says don't do this, but you've got selfishness on the other that wants all those things and just keeps wanting more and more, and the more you show it that, the more it wants. You see, the selfish side wants to keep control of life through freedom from the rules. I'm in charge of my life. But the conscience side also wants to keep control of, the, of your life by following all the rules. Look at how good I'm living. I'm owed a good life. Neither of them really wants to please God or let him call the shots. The selfish side is trying to save itself through rebellion, and the conscience side is trying to save itself through conformance. But neither of them wants Jesus as Savior. The selfish side hates the rules, and the conscience side is using the rules Neither of them love the rules. And this is a critical thing we need to understand. We have to redefine our view of sin. Sin's kind of a religious word that we use. Um, you say it, people are like, ooh, sin. Well, that's kind of weird. Um, and when we think of sin, I think the first thing we think of is just the bad stuff that people do. Which sin is so much more than that. 
the Bible has some, says it, doesn't, it includes that stuff, but it goes so much deeper than that. Sin isn't just doing bad things. It's a power that corrupts even our reasons and motivations for all the good things that we do. That's why in Romans 8, 7, Paul says, the mind given by the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Paul isn't saying here that people never do good things. He's saying in the midst of doing those good things, they're not thinking, I just love submitting to God. I just really love God, so I want to do this. At the heart of sin is a desire to be God instead of be under God. So you see, as unbelievers, we think that sin is our friend and God is the enemy. But a believer has been awakened to the fact that it's actually the reverse. God's our friend and sin's the enemy. The struggle's different now. Before, the struggle was between doing good so God would accept us or doing evil because the rules are silly and God's a killjoy. But now we have a new identity. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that if anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. Brand new. You didn't just get a makeover, you got a replacement. See, as an unbeliever, we're really two selves divided against each other. You've got conscience on one side and you've got selfishness, the sinful side, on the other. Both kind of warring against each other, but both of them in agreement that God's the enemy. And so you can't win. But as a believer, you're neither of those selves anymore. You've become a brand new self. The moment we said, I'm done trying to save myself, and I want Jesus to be my Savior, that was the moment we got a new identity. God placed his spirit within us, united us to Jesus, in a way now that lets us desire him above all other things, and kill the root of sin that was just wrapped around our hearts. Before, we were incapable of that. That's the main, that is the difference between the hearts of unbelievers and believers. And if you're listening today and, you know, you haven't said that, you haven't said, I'm done trying to save myself, I'd like Jesus to be my Savior, you haven't done that. Maybe you're not even sure about all this talk, what Christianity stuff. Let me encourage you, keep coming. Keep listening, keep investigating. Because if what I'm saying is true, then this isn't just about finding some inner peace or getting a little, or you know, making some self-improvements here and there. It's a matter of life and death. There are eternal stakes in the balance here. And you owe it to yourself to find out if Christianity is true or if it's just a bunch of nonsense. So if you're feeling that tug at all today in your heart, don't ignore it. Don't walk away and say, I'll deal with that later. You may not have later. You may not have tomorrow. You don't know. Talk to someone today. But let's take a deeper look at the struggle we have now with sin as believers, now that we've kind of understood a little bit of the nature of it. Um, Paul starts getting into this in verse 14, and you can tell the difference between these two sections. There's a bunch of things, cues, that kind of tell us the shift that occurs here. One of them is the there's tense changes, verb tense changes. So from verses 7 to 13, everything's in the past tense. Starting in verse 14, he switches it to the present tense. That's one cue that he's saying, I'm not talking about, I'm talking about me now. 
in this section. But there's some other ones that we're going to go through. And we don't have tons of time here, so I'm just going to look at two things about our struggle as a believer that Paul looks at here. There's a lot more we could go into here if we had more time. I encourage you to go look. But the two things that we have here is he underscores the seriousness of the struggle we have, and he underscores the confusing nature of the struggle. So, firstly, seriousness of it. Look at verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. Now, in case you were tempted to take sin lightly, Paul's trying to remind us of how serious an enemy we're dealing with. This isn't just a battle against doing bad things. It's a battle against a living enemy that's completely saturated with evil. How do we know that? How do we know that that's the battle? Look at what he says later in verse 18. He says, Nothing good dwells in me that is in my sinful nature. Nothing good at all. Totally evil. That's a pretty serious problem. That's what's living inside of all of us. Do you ever think, do you think of sin like this? Do you think of sin like this, this living enemy that's out to get you, that's con- so consumed to selfishness? Or are you kind of tempted to take sin a little lighter than that? Well, you know, you know, here and there I just do some bad stuff. Are you ever tempted to think, well, I just need to try a little harder? Or maybe, well, Jesus took care of my sin, so I don't know to think about it that much anymore. Hey, come on. If that's the way you think, then you're setting yourself up for failure. Because you're not realizing how sin-soaked your flesh really is. If there's, not even just, if there's not just like a little bit of fear when we talk about this, then we're not grasping the danger. And you can see this even more clearly in verse 23. And Paul says, oh, I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin I work within me. Sin doesn't want to hurt us only. It also wants to just take us down. Sin's trying to destroy us. Is this the way you kind of think about the selfishness that's in your heart? Listen to this quote from C.S. Lewis. I, just, I love this. He says, Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you're still distinct from it. You may even be able to criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop, but there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It's not a question of God sending us to hell. And each of us, there is something growing that's going to be hell unless it's nipped in the bud. The reality is that little by little, sin's trying to pull you back into bondage. And sin's so tricky, crafty with how it does this, because every time you say yes to sin, just a little temptation, the next time it comes, it's just a little easier to say yes to that. Because we don't just wake up one day and jump into horrible things. It's one choice at a time, little by little. You know, the rapists and the murderers, they didn't wake up one day and be like, you know, I think I'm going to go rape someone. I think I'll go murder someone today. It was one choice after another over a period of time that brought them to that point. 
So you don't know what's down there. If you think you're not capable of stuff like that, you're underestimating the danger and the power that this enemy has. So the struggle is serious, but look, it's also very confusing as a believer, isn't it? Look at all the language Paul just keeps using. It's even confusing just reading this. I do what I don't want to do, and I do what I didn't, and I didn't. Like, it's like, okay, trying to like wrap my head around that. Paul keeps saying that throughout this section. He says that down in verse 22, he says, in my inner being I delight in God's law, which, by the way, that's a mark of a true believer. Only a Christian can say that. But right, he says that right alongside all these things that he says, I have this desire, but I can't carry it out. I'm doing everything I don't want to do. He keeps on doing things that are bad. He hates the sin, but he keeps falling into it. And despite the fact that it's not his, his, not his true identity, that sinful nature, that's not his true identity anymore. It's not yours either if you're a believer. It seems like it still gets the upper hand so often. Um, there's been a lot of Marvel movies over the last, like, 10 years, Maybe too many. Uh, I can't keep any of them straight anymore. Like, there's like 50 Captain Americas, and they, someone names them. I'm like, I've probably seen that one. As, but, but the one, I like the character, um, the one that I really think is one of the most interesting is the character of the Hulk. And um, I don't know if you, uh, you guys know who he is. He's a big green dude that basically can destroy everything around him. He's like invincible. I mean, I would take that power. That'd be pretty cool power to have. I mean, I don't want to be green like that. If I could get rid of that and just be invincible. Um, but does anyone remember who uh, the Hulk really is? Like, identity? Like, the name of the person? Yeah. Bruce Banner. Sometimes it's hard to even remember that guy. Because you're like, the Hulk. But Brent Banner's the real guy. Right? Banner, Brent, Banner even calls the Hulk the other guy. And so even though Bruce is Banner's true self, he has this other guy that's kind of sharing the same body. And sometimes that guy just takes over and causes Banner's body to do crazy, awful things. Well, if you understand that, then you can sort of understand how we relate to our flesh now. Doesn't it seem like selfish desires just kind of take over sometimes? Can you identify with that feeling? Can you identify with the experience that Paul is talking about here? Sometimes it's really discouraging. Why do I find that deep down I desire to obey God, but I can't do it? Sometimes I feel that those other desires are taking me away from God. Why does it seem like I go back and forth between loving God's ways and loving sin's ways? This is why. You've got an unwanted house guest hanging out alongside your new identity and constantly yanking on it. That's why we have this battle. And it's a struggle we're going to deal with our whole lives because we're stuck in this body for now. So if I just like stopped here, that'd be a pretty depressing place, I think, to stop. Have a good Sunday, guys. You're going to continue. <laughs> but there's more. Thank God there's more. There's victory. There's victory to be had because God wants victory for us. He hasn't left us alone. Look at verses 24 and 25. Paul, at the end of all of this, says, What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me? Paul looks at this, and he's like, I'm cooked, man. 
I, I can't get out of this. He, he's like cursing himself almost. This doesn't sound like a guy that says, you just got to try a little harder. This is a guy who says, I'm overmatched. I'm done. I'm defeated. There's no way I can do this on my own. But you see, the minute Paul admits this is when he begins to turn the tables on sin. Because seeing who the enemy is, knowing where they are, that's like half the battle, isn't it? I mean, if the Steelers think that Dobbins has the ball, but it's really Lamar who has the ball, well, we've all seen what happens when that is the case. Happens all the time against the Steelers. I mean, even if they know Lamar has the ball, they might not stop him anyway, right? I mean, he may, they might still give up a ton of yards, but they've got a better chance of stopping him if they know who's got it. In our battle against sin, admitting that it's an enemy you can't beat on your own is the only way to take steps towards victory. You know, there's an interesting place um, in Luke where Jesus is eating with some tax collectors and, uh, you know, the Pharisees come and say, hey, why are you eating with these sinners? Pharisees always love to say that. And Jesus' reply is like kind of startling. He says, hey, it's not the healthy you need the doctor. It's the sick people. And I haven't come, I've come to call not the righteous to repentance, but sinners. And at first you hear that and you're like, well, is he saying that like, oh yeah, you Pharisees, I know you're, you guys are good. I'm not here for, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just trying to help these people. Well, we know from the rest of what Jesus says about this that that's not true. What he's actually saying is like, look, there are people who think they're okay, and I'm not here for them. I'm here for people who know they're not okay. I have nothing to say to people who think that they're, that they're a good person and they measure up. My words are for the people that know they don't measure up. And so admitting this and remembering this is the first step. It's the invitation for Jesus to help. It's only humble people that have a chance of victory. So that's the place we have to start. But we need a lot more than that. Recognizing the condition is not enough. You need something more. Remember at the beginning of this passage, we talked about the fundamental problem with how we used to battle was that deep down we knew we were guilty. We didn't measure up. And we kept trying to just push that feeling away by rebelling against rules and having a good time or trying to follow all the rules and, like, you know, feel good about ourselves. But it just wouldn't go away, that feeling. And now, when we're believers in the midst of this struggle, and we see our failures, and we see the same thing, we, we kind of think, this is the same thing. I'm doing the same thing as I was before. But Paul wants you to know that that's wrong. It's not the same thing. Look at verse, I didn't print it, but look at verses, verse 1 in chapter 8. He says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And this is our big idea for tonight. Sin is a strong enemy. But Jesus is a stronger friend. When Jesus was on the cross, he faced down our enemy. He went toe-to-toe with sin, and he won. He obeyed God. He resisted sin like we were supposed to. And then he went and died like we should have in our place. And by doing so, he dealt sin the death blow that it needed. I mean, you couldn't ask for a better friend than this. On the cross, Jesus took that selfish, sinful, sin-soaked self that we all have with all its rebellion, its evil thoughts, 
everything you've ever done wrong, everything anyone has ever done wrong. Think of the worst sins people have committed, atrocities. All that stuff fell on Jesus, and God did exactly what we would do if we saw that in one person. We'd pour out wrath on them. We'd pour out justice on them. That's what God did. And in this one act, he forever separated you from that nature. And he bound you to his son and gave you a new nature, a new identity. You notice all through this section, Paul keeps saying like, hey, it's not me who's doing these things. It's the sinless living in me. And we're looking at that. I know I've done it. I was like, what is he talking about? Like, of course it's me doing this stuff. Like, I'm making the choice to sin. But what God wants you to know is that's not how he sees it anymore. God doesn't look at you and see failure. Because of what Jesus did, now when he looks at you, he doesn't see a sinner. He sees the perfect, spotless goodness of his son. He no longer looks and sees your failures. All he sees are your successes. All he sees are all the ways that we have obeyed him because that's all Jesus ever did was obey God. He sees all the ways that you seek to please him now. And you know what this means it means that God's proud to call you his son and daughter. On the cross, that was the permanent stamp of God's approval. And now when he sees your struggle, he's not disappointed in you anymore. Now he's proud to fight with you. You know, there's a staggering place in, Roman, in uh, Hebrews 2 where Jesus, it says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Think that. Let let that sink in for a second. The perfect, sinless Son of God is proud to call people like us, weak, double-minded, backsliding, rebels, brothers and sisters, family? Is that someone you'd want in your family? Jesus does. And so now this is how we fight. We don't fight the old way anymore. Instead, now we meditate on and we remember the new identity we have in Christ. I think the main reason that we as Christians can continue to live in sin and defeat is really twofold. One, we stay in old battle mentality. And two, we continue to believe lies about our identity. How do you know if this is you? Well, a couple of questions here, a couple of statements I'll make. If any of these sound familiar to you, God is disappointed when I fail. God isn't really on my side against sin. I mean, he wants me to win, but he's not really fighting for me. I'm not getting any better. God likes me and listens to me less when I've rebelled. I've just got to try to say hard. I just got to try harder to say no to sin. All of that's old self-talk. That's old battle talk. It's old identity talk. Look at verse 6. It wasn't part of what we uh, had written, but in, in some ways it's a key verse. It says, But now by dying to once bound us, we've been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Now the old way of the written code was focusing on the law and trying hard to follow it. But the new way of the Spirit is focusing on Jesus and fighting to see him as beautiful and wonderful. Think about it. When are you most willing and desire, you know, desirous to serve your spouse? 
isn't it when you see her as beautiful? Isn't it when you see him as wonderful? Your heart's captured by them. Your selfish desires are overridden by your delight in them. You know, Taco Bell's not a big temptation if you know you got a gourmet steak waiting for you at home, right? I mean, this is the primary work the Spirit is doing in our lives. He's shining a spotlight on Jesus. That's what he does. He reveals to us the beauty, wonder, radiance, and dazzling goodness of the sun to our hearts because our hearts just don't believe it. And we have to see that. That's the key in this battle. I can invite the band to come up here. Remember the Hulk from earlier? How did Bruce prevent himself from turning into the Hulk? Yeah, he couldn't get angry. Getting angry was the thing that would do it, right? But it wasn't that he just sat there and was like, I'm not going to get angry, I'm not going to get angry. Remember when he tried to do that? He would, it wouldn't work. I mean, have you ever been stressed out and someone says to you, hey, don't be stressed out, just calm down. Does that calm you down? Or do you just want to rip their face off? No, Bruce kept from becoming the hog by avoiding situations that made him angry, but also recalling good memories and relaxing things. It didn't always work, though, but that was what it did it for him. And see, that's how we have to fight now. It's only when the love of God begins to shock you, when it's not just an assumption anymore, when you just can't believe that God loves you like this, when the truth of that God is proud to have you in his family, that when he looks at you, his heart just bursts with delight. When that dawns on your heart, that is when the beast is finally slain. Has this dawned on your heart yet? Does your heart melt at the display of God's great love towards you and the radiance of the heart of Christ? Or are you still trying to scold your heart into doing what's right? Want to take it from Paul? That will never work. You know, a good book to read, um, I think, that kind of shows you the heart of Jesus is this book called Gentle and Lowly by Nate Ortland. I've mentioned it before. He really unpacks what the heart of Jesus looks like that might be something you need to see Jesus' heart for you. Because he makes him look beautiful and, and just alluring, attractive. And that's what your heart needs. And maybe there's some of you here who came nearly ready to give up because a particular sin is not going away. You might need this more than anybody. To stop seeing Jesus as someone who's disappointed with your failures and instead to see him as a friend who understand what you're going through, who's got his arm around you, saying, hey, brother, hey, sister, I'm here with you. I'm in the fight with you. This is the truth we need. This, we need to keep looking at Jesus. We need to keep, for as long as it takes, to melt our hearts and, seeing, and see him as beautiful. Because it's only with that desire, armed with that desire, that you can kill all these other ones. Armed with this truth, you can't lose. So if you don't understand this, don't stop until you do. If you're here today, you need to talk to somebody about this. There's pastors here who would love to talk to you about it. This is the only way you're going to have victory, though. Sin's a strong enemy, but Jesus is a stronger friend, and he's proud to call you family. And sin doesn't stand a chance against that kind of power. 
Now, we're going to sing a song here in a moment that really focuses in on just how wonderful Jesus is and the effect that can have on our hearts as we do battle in this world. But I want to pray for us first. So I'm going to invite you to stand, and then I'm going to pray for us because I know there's probably people here who sin has gotten the upper hand a lot. And you're walking in shame and defeat. I just want you to know Jesus doesn't want that for you. Jesus' love for you and how he feels about you does not change based on how you're doing. And you need that. Your heart needs that today. So let me pray for us and then we'll sing this song. Father, just thank you so much for how good you are. Thank you that our sin and the ugliness of us and our selfishness didn't stop you from sending your son, from giving him to us. Thank you that you wanted us. And thank you that you did what was needed to make us part of your family. Jesus, thank you for what you did coming to this earth and loving us to the point of death. Thank you that you value us and treasure us because we're a gift from your dad. And Holy Spirit, thank you so much for the, how you continuously open our eyes to who Jesus is, how continuously you're putting him in front of us saying, look at how amazing he is. Oh, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do that more and more and more and that our hearts would respond more and more and more to that. And I pray for those here who are just struggling with condemnation and shame and guilt. I pray that you would help them to see how you really feel about them, what you've done for them, that you'd break the bonds of shame and, and guilt and condemnation so that we can walk in victory and freedom because that's what you want for us. Thank you, Lord, for all that you are. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.